Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. This is the debut of Charlotte Vassell. Do you pronounce it Vassell or Vassell? Well, <laughs> it's a funny thing. So I, my father's parents are Jamaican and they'd say Vassell. But there was a footballer who played for a local football team when I was growing up and then played for England who and everyone pronounced it Vassell. So my family have all gone, right, well, we're going to some posher. We're going to say Vassell and okay. sound French and fancy. So we all just shifted at some point when I was 12 from one to the okay. other. So I don't really mind, really. <laughs> Either one. All right. Well, we'll go with Vassell. I kind of like that. Anyway, your book is called The Other Half. And before we talk about it. Let me introduce you to Charlotte. You'll gather she's a British writer. There's Sorry. Yeah. Right. Living near London. Actually, she tells me she lives in a lovely community that has a medieval church, and it's not that far from Oxford. No, no, no. Well, nothing's far from Oxford in England, really. It's, it's not. <laughs> True. So let me, let me just point out that when I spent a summer at mm. Worcester College, they read you into the to the Bodley in the library at Oxford. You have to take an oath that you will not light fire. You get a special <laughs> library card, the whole nine yards. And then what you discover is that they have a very odd cataloging system because, you know, I was a librarian here at the Library of Congress before I had a bookstore. And it's it's by accession date. It's not alphabetical. It's not so. It's in, And so what they have are these books, and they create slips when the books come in, and then they paste them in. So it, it's almost impossible to retrieve a book from the Bobbian on that basis. So what we would do, hilariously, we would drive to Cambridge and <laughs> use the Cambridge <laughs> Library. As a, you it's, know. it's not that far. No, it's not. No, not at all. You used to be able to, in the medieval period, before the dissolution of the, monarchies, uh, the monasteries, you used to be able to walk from Oxford to Cambridge on land entirely owned by the church. Like, it's not, it's not that far at all. No, it's not. And there's a there's a wonderful series written by a British author called Susanna. We're really diverse, but you don't care. Um, <laughs> Susanna Gregory that um, mm. is set in 1349. And because so many people died, there were not enough students at either college to keep the college going. So they tried to poach each other. So, I mean, that was part of it. They would try to actually steal the brother Michael at Cambridge would try to rate it at Oxford and Oxford <laughs> would kind of come and try to haul the students back and all that. Um, you know, we didn't really, um, we didn't really get that kind of population decimation really during COVID, but you know, we did have some, but the mm. black death actually killed off, you know, what was it like two thirds of the population. So imagine what it would be like. Um, mm. if that had occurred and what that meant for institutions. Yeah, and labor prices. Everyone demanded there was a peasant's revolt because everyone was like, "I'm, you've got nobody here and why are you pay me so much money when you're the scarcity of workers? Why won't well, you pay me? Well, it broke up the feudal system. Yeah. Well, anyway, we <laughs> let's go back to... Let's go back to Charlotte. Now I've lost what I was about to say. So, so I once a history student, now. always a history student. I know it. We're both history geeks. <laughs> okay. Anyway, and she studied history at the University of Liverpool and art history at SOAS. What's that? SOAS. So it's a very uh, interesting, tiny little institution. It's not got a huge number of students, it's part of the University of London, and it's, it stands for the School of Oriental and African Studies. But oh. they don't like to call it that anymore because obviously there's sort of that kind of connotation of the words um, Oriental. Uh, but it was originally set up as a training college for the British Empire. So if you were a civil servant who was going out to administer India, you'd right. need to understand some Hindi. So that's where they, they'd send you to learn it. So it's 
But it's a very much, it's a very left wing and very like anti-colonial establishment now. It's gone full circle. I see. Well, wonderful for you. And then she has worked in advertising, trained as an actor, and here's the part I want to know, and as purveyor of silk top hats. So I want to know about the silk top hats before we talk about (laughs) your book, because I'm entranced. Well, when I was uh, at drama school and a bit after when I was acting, I had this amazing job selling hats in one of the kind of remaining traditional British hatters in um, and German Street, St. James's, and it's mm. very, very fancy. Uh, and I, I used to be able to look at a man and tell you how large his head was in centimetres <laughs> incredibly accurately. <laughs> so lots of flat caps for people to go shooting in and top hats when it came to Ascot and summer, summer wedding mm. season. I love it. So did that give you insights into human nature? Yeah, it must yes, have. It yes. must have. I and especially in the privileged British because, yes. you know, because there was a, a posher side. Yeah, I mean, they're just because they're, they're expensive items, you know, it's the, if you're spending minimum £150 on a hat, then you've obviously got some cash to spare, and that's, that's the minimum. Um, I think any service job kind of gives you quite a lot of mm-hmm. information about how people operate and how how status works within a community and just because you know people will assume that you're of a lower status than them because you're serving them so how they treat you is always yes, quite telling that happens in bookstores too <laughs> yeah, i can imagine <laughs> patrick may remember but you're saying we're going to dress again here uh when we had our little first bookstore over on main street it was just me for a while and then it was karen and then patrick but anyway we had a customer who was a great customer and he was i think a doctor from Boston. Anyway, the first time he came into the store, he expected me to trail him around like a scrub nurse, you know, to sort of, you know, carry all the books. So I thought about that for a while and realized I'd had that treatment elsewhere. So I went home and dug out my various diplomas and honors and so forth, and I bashed them all up on the wall behind the checkout desk. And the next time he came in, I went and stood underneath (laughs) one of my master's degrees or something, you know, and then after that, he didn't give me any more trouble but you're right i mean Mm. you do um there is a a tendency to think that people serving you in a retail or hospitality or other capacity you know are different class it's it's the if you're on a first date with someone and they're rude to the waiter and it's always a bit like oh oh no that's a big ick isn't it like don't date you it really is. <laughs> so the other half, you said um, mm. before we started talking that this was your lockdown novel. It was. And I will tell you, um, I'm going to be talking to Val McDermott Monday at noon. If you read Val's book, Past Lying, the British lockdown was so different than our experience of COVID. It was so firm, so stern, so rigid, and the penalties for, except for, of course, people like Boris Johnson, who well, broke them habitually, but... Um, we're coming out now. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I can really understand that under those circumstances that writing a book would be yeah. like a sanity saver. Well, I, I was, I think I was, I'd been furloughed from my, my job in events. Obviously, you can't organize events when you can't leave the house. And um, I'd been watching a lot of Bones, and I was like, oh. I can't watch ten episodes of Bones a day for how you know however long this is going to last. I need, I need to, I need to find something. And I actually had the idea for the the kind of love triangle that exists within the novel uh, in about twenty fifteen. And I tried a couple of times to write it, and it never quite worked. And I thought, sod it, right? This is it. You can't leave the house. You're going to write this damn novel. 
yeah, I think you've got a novel in you. So, so I did, but it was very kind of feverish. It's kind of ironic, really, with COVID. But it was, uh, I just sort of sat there, woke up in the morning, had breakfast, started writing, and then I'd kind of eat throughout the day, and that would sort of be it. And, and it was just me and the book constantly for for a good, like, two months. According to Val's book, you were only allowed out, like, an hour a day for exercise. There was you a had point, to yeah. stay within your little bubble and yeah. you couldn't let other people into it. I mean, yeah. it was really draconian in a way that we did not experience. It was quite terrifying in some senses because it was, I, I was living in a in a, in a a flat, um, so it was like, oh, am I going to bump into someone in the stairwell and, um, like, going to the supermarket once a week to do a big shop Right. And and me and my me and my partner taking it in turns. So I go one week and he'd go the next. So it would be like oh, quite rigid, and you're kind of staring at someone touching up a tomato to see if it's ripe in Waitrose, and you're like, oh, I can't believe you're touching that tomato. <laughs> you're not supposed to be touching things, and you're there touching up all the tomatoes. I know that people who lived in high-rise buildings had actually um, elevator protocols. Jane Ann Krentz, right, remember, wrote to me from Seattle saying that she was on the eighth floor and it was hard to leave home because you never knew, you know, what the elevator protocol would be because you're only supposed to be like two people in it. And Arizona is is more horizontal than vertical in our housing and we have a lot of space. Mm. So stuff like that didn't sort of yeah. Yeah. Didn't get, get you to by. Us. So you decided I mean I, I did want to ask you mm. if you there's been talk about how this book is like Eagle and Wall or other satirists <laughs> of the social structure in the UK mm -hmm. and so forth. Was it easier for you to write about Rupert and the others, you know, as you were not, as you're not of that social yeah. class? It's an interesting question. Um, I have come across have you know sort of just just the living in london london has got some of the like worst social inequality in the kind of developed world and i've rubbed shoulders with people who've come from entirely different backgrounds different worlds different expectations and just different wealth and opportunities based on who their parents are and you kind of it's hard not to internalize that sort of thing and i think part of it for me as well being mixed race i'm half um British, half Jamaican, and I've always felt slightly other and slightly out of it. And I, as a historian as well, I'm kind of very aware of those sorts of structures. I'm always kind of watching and observing, thinking, oh, that's interesting that you've you've said that word instead of this word, because I, I know that I can now say what social class you are based on whether you said toilet or not. Right. Um, and that's quite, quite odd. Um, one thing I find really interesting with Evelyn Waugh, another favourite writer of mine is Nancy Mitford. Mm -hmm. And to me, Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford are fairly rare in that they were of that social class exactly. and they were commenting. Um, and P.G. Woodhouse as well, I suppose. So they're kind of moving within those circles as people they know and sort of, you know, ask some of the characters you think, oh, it's probably based on your friend. And I, I'm sort of doing it from a, a, a sort of step back almost. I don't know that you could have written these characters if you had been. I mean, there's there's a pretty savage tone to all this. Yes, yeah, you I know? think there's a maliciousness. <laughs> no, I would, well, okay, maybe so. Well, the characters um, so one of the me. first things I should say to you is that, you know, one of the, the tricks of the British language is that you don't always pronounce it the way it's spelled. Mm. So the detective's name is actually pronounced Keys Beecham, but it's spelled C A I U S. And then. Well, it would be Caius. See, I'm playing know, with I you even on his Keys. first name. Was it the college in Cambridge? Is It's written Caius, as right. in the Roman praenom, but it's 
pronounced keys and that's right. one of those little kind of like if you didn't know go to Cambridge and if you don't know people who've gone to Cambridge you wouldn't know that so if you're going to your interview and you say oh I'm interviewing at Caius College and everyone would be like well, well you're not in but you would actually call a person Caius yes I would I we were sort of like he's personally, Keys. but he's a cop. But <laughs> anyway, and then Beauchamp uh, is pronounced Beecham, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Yeah. B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P in British is called Beecham. So Rupert is actually Rupert. He's the focal point of this novel. Is Rupert Beecham, and the cop is I will now call him Caius Beecham. <laughs> but they're not related. Why did you decide to give them the same surname? Um, well, we sort of slightly touched on it earlier. Um, I've got a fairly like posh-looking name, but that's because my father's family are Jamaican. And if you meet a lot of Jamaicans, you come to realise that they often have quite fancy-looking surnames. And it's the sort of legacy of the slave trade Um there's actually a family who my ancestors took their name from and they owned a big chunk of South London. There's an area called Vassal, not far from Brixton. It's beautiful. They sort of t- English townhouses when they've, they're all painted white and they've got the black fence like spears to say commoners, you're not allowed in. Um, and there's a Vassal Road and they owned all that land and developed it. And they were very, very wealthy. I think they were probably Huguenots. Um, and then, you, then there's us, and we've kind of got the same name, and it, it, it's just all quite uncomfortable. And I, my my best friend um, is uh, her family are, are Punjabi, they're Sikh, and she she knows that she's a core. She like she knows her her family name, she knows her identity. She's got her own language, she's got her own religion. Mm-hmm. The Raj didn't take that from her, whereas that got taken from my ancestors. Like I don't know really what my family name should be. I've just got the name that someone chose after the ending of, of slavery. But you know what? That happened to people who voluntarily immigrated to the United uh, yes. States. And when they got to Ellis Island, many of them, you know, they were they were given different names or a name. Um, so there's a fair amount of that. Reese Bowen has dealt with that in her, um, um, her series about Molly, Molly Murphy. I, I used to date an American guy, actually, and his grandfather's family was Swedish, but they picked an English surname when they moved to America just to make it easier. So they changed. Swedish is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Swedish is definitely hard. Anyway, Rupert um, Rupert starts out, so set the opening scene for us, because I, I have to say, I have never <laughs> read one quite like it. So, it's Rupert's 30th birthday party, and him and his friends have all dressed up in black tie, and he thinks it's incredibly funny to take over a McDonald's in Kentish Town, and he pays off the staff who are on minimum wage with crisp £50 notes. They turn off the CCTV, and him and his friends take over the upstairs area, which is where the children's birthday party section in the ball pit is, and they have this raucous boozy McDonald's birthday party in black tie and it's all very grotesque and um champagne and cocaine champagne and cocaine it's BYOC so instead of bring your own booze it's bring your own coke and that was what was on the invite for everybody um I, I am. There is a thing actually sometimes in in Britain where people will dress up in black tie to go to places like McDonald's and they like students in posh universities and they think it's kind of funny. I got told by someone once that their friends used to do that and it really really irked me because um, Britain isn't a particularly twenty four seven society. Um, things aren't open necessarily as late at night as they might be 
be here. And McDonald's is one of the few places, if say you were a nurse and you were working a shift, it's three o'clock in the morning and you want something hot to drink if you want a cup of tea a cup of coffee you know just a quick bite to eat mcdonald's is probably one of the only places that's open and people people rely on it in that sense um and it has like a i know we all think mcdonald's isn't particularly good for you but it, it does have a societal role and just to kind of to turn up and to take the take the mickey of people who are working really hard for not very much money because you think it's funny it just just really gets me <laughs> well but that's that whole bright young thing you know yes um, yeah People that, um, you know, have loads of money and loads of status and are not generally held accountable for whatever no. they do. Um, <laughs> so I thought I thought you expressed that really well with the birthday party. I really love this description that somebody said about this book. A scintillating debut which shifts effortlessly from the sacred to the profane by combining a cast of compulsively ghastly characters, <laughs> a truly engaging cop, Ancient Greek, Instagram, a corpse on the heath, and a butler in McDonald's. Much of what I loved about the secret history, Donna Tart's book, is to be found here, but with a thoroughly modern sensibility all of its own. Somebody else said, imagine a handful of dust meets the great Gatsby on a northern line tube to Kendish Town. A crime thriller, sharp-witting, energetic, it is as bitingly satirical which I really love. Um, so obviously your book has really resonated mm. with British readers. Yeah. Maybe not a Rupert social class. Maybe however. not. Maybe not. They're too busy shooting at birds on their estates to read my silly novel. Mm. <laughs> well, no, but I think, I think you had some really interesting things to say. But aside from the, the satire of, you know, people like Rupert, mm. um, there there's a lot of... of um, ancient history, the Greek world, um, all of that. So how did you, you know, thread all this together? Because I thought that part was fascinating. Well, I I went to a kind of a bit like class. I went to quite like a dodgy school. Um, and, and, and in England, uh, the study of classics is very much the preserve of people who've been privately educated. If you don't go to a private school, you know, uh, or public or, school, or public school for, yeah. Right. Well, because there's two strata. So private schools right. are just ones that you pay for, and then you've got public schools, which are like the institutions like Eton, which are very expensive and have been around for like 800 years, kind of vibe. Um, but if you if you haven't been to one of those schools, if you don't have that background, you don't get taught Latin. You might you might do some Roman history in when you're 12, yeah. and that's kind of. That's kind of it. And it's it's one of those subjects I think people are really passionate about and really interested in, but there was just no provision to study it formally within the British education system. Classics, I think if you are applying for Oxford or Cambridge and you're privately educated, has got the highest um, success rate because there's fewer applicants because if you haven't done ancient Greek, if you haven't done Latin, then you, you can't really do the do the course. Well, I mean, I think that writers of a earlier age that were educated mm. there, they throw Latin into their books as they you know, it's just a lingua franca. So yeah, this yeah. And, definitely. Uh, I still remember Dorothy Sayers, who, you know, was very well educated, had an entire, I think it's an entire letter in French in one of her mysteries, and the publisher wanted to translate it. <laughs> and her her response was that her readers would be able to oh, read, read French. You know, she was really <laughs> offended at the idea that you know people would be reading her mysteries um, that weren't fluent in French. Weren't fluent, or at least clever yeah. opposite. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I I still remember that. In fact, one of her short stories, I think it's Sayers, 
um, the whole clue is is from the French language. There's a mm. gender confusion, and when you read uh. it, and if you speak French, you think, well, hello, you know, yeah, they yeah, got yeah. it wrong. And then later on, you discover that, in point of fact, it was there for a purpose. That there really was a, you know, how Shakespeare was always switching mm. sexes and mm. so forth. Very much the same kind of thing. Yeah, I'll have to look but, up. But um, so you're right. Um, language facility is just another um, class to buy. Yeah. I, well, actually, one of my my other lockdown project was teaching myself ancient Greek. My husband is a classicist; he teaches mm-hmm. uh, Latin. So he was like, "Right, well, I can just give you. I've got textbooks. You, you can teach yourself. It's a busman's holiday for me. I'm I'm not going to teach you ancient Greek. You can do it." And I learnt the alphabet, so I could kind of read it phonetically, but I haven't got a clue what I've just said. My husband studied ancient Greek, and what really pisses me off, I studied Russian, and he can read the Russian alphabet better than I can. He doesn't <laughs> understand the Russian, but he is able to you know to get the alphabet and which i have to struggle with because it's harder to unlearn the value of a sim you know mm. of a letter and give it a new value it just you know like in 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 russian an m is a t and an s is a c and a b is a v and so if you if you know them in yeah. their you know their english thing it's really hard to try to you know Unlearn it Unlearn and then it. relearn it for Russian. It's easier for the for the Russian language characters that you don't know because mm-hmm. they're they're simple. They're completely novels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my my husband does this thing when we're watching game shows, and if it's a scientific process, then he can usually have a stab at working out the answer based off the Latin. So we're like, right, well, if it's got light, it's going to be photo something, and then blah blah blah, blah and he'll, he'll probably come up with the answer just by. Having little shifty around with the lat- with Latin always gets me. I'm like, you didn't know that though, did you? <laughs> so we have we have the birthday party at mm. McDonald's. We have people there who are pretty much trashed on Coke and champagne, and then we get a body, right? Because mm, this do. is a murder mystery. So who is the body? How'd she get there? So uh, the poor deceased is Clemmy, who's Rupert's sort of girlfriend. They've got a very tumultuous relationship and she is just found on the heath the next day by by Caius, who's gone out for a jog because he's just been dumped and he's on like a post kind of breakup health kick. He's millennial, so he kind of feels like he needs to do some sort of self-improvement to make himself feel better. So, uh, yeah, so he finds the body when he's out on Hampstead Heath. Clemmy, right. Mm. Clementine? Clemency. Clemency, mm. okay. Uh, very British name. Yeah. I like that, <laughs> right. So she's Rupert's girlfriend, and therefore uh, Rupert and his circle are going to come under. Um, is it fairly clear that the only the group at the birthday party in McDonald's are likely to include the, the killer or because she's on the heath is that a much more wide open proposition? I think it starts out much wider and the problem is with the birthday party when they look at the timelines everyone's sort of got an alibi so Rupert's always with someone he's in this big group of people they're all together so the kind of challenge for Caius and his team is to work out like actually what did happen here who was genuinely where um and, and they disabled the CCTV. They disabled That's the CCTV. Staple of all British crime anymore it, is yeah, CCTV footage. Because it, London has the most CCTV in the world. 
Like it's it's nigh on it's fairly hard to go dis- to disappear for very long in London because there is just that much CCTV. I think it started out in the 80s with the IRA um, and like the steel ring kind of around London. So they started putting in a lot of CCTV. It's, it's, if you go any any shop has CCTV people and we even do it to ourselves now. Everyone's got ring cameras, so you know so you can see if you're having deliveries. There was um actually when I was writing this, there's the Sarah Everard case. I don't know if that came up. Over over here, which is a young woman who had was abducted off the street in Clapham. She was walking home after seeing a friend. Um, I think he's been convicted now, but it was a police officer who abducted her. Yes, I did read um, about it. Yeah, right. absolutely dreadful. And there was uh, a lot of protest by women on Ham- uh, on Clapham Common, and the, the police were very like manhandled them. It was it was really really dreadful. And I'd lived in that part of London, so it felt quite personal to me that, that like uh, that was the the bit that I used to walk around myself all the time and it was yeah it was just awful um but there were sightings of her on people's ring cameras so the police could track her for a bit because she'd walked past someone's camera on their front door on their doorbell right well it's a staple of British cop yeah. shows if you watch them is you know the first thing they do is review the CCTV mm. footage or look for cameras and even one of the other tricks is even if the perp has disabled the obvious cameras, there's always one hiding in some corner or yeah. You know, yeah genuinely, it, there is that much CCTV. It really is, yeah. It, it's, it, and yeah. you're right with all the private, not just the yeah. public ones, but now with the ring cameras and yeah. so forth. They had a hilarious one on Instagram of somebody here in Arizona. Must have been up towards Payson or something. But anyway, the family had ordered pizza. And so the pizza driver, it's all on the camera. The pizza driver comes up and, you know, puts the order down on the doorstep and takes the photo to prove the delivery and goes away. And then and then this bear comes along and oh, goes, bear. yum, <laughs> and takes off with the pizza. And then the people open the door. The whole thing is on their camera. And they're oh, looking yeah. around like, where is the pizza? pizza and God. the bear is sculpted off around the corner. <laughs> just, you know, you get stuff like that that, um, you know, sort of. No. Right. Oh dear. I hope they weren't antique teddy bears. Carnage. <laughs> he had a good time though, the dog. I'm sure he did. Right. Um, well, anyway, um, so so Caius, why does he? Why does he? He he discovers the body, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be his case. Is it yeah. in his jurisdiction? Yeah. So it's kind of it's in his backyard, really. So he's sort of part of um, sort of Camden and Islington area police, which encompasses Hampstead Heath and the sort of the bit he lives not far from it. Hence why he's jogging there, because you're not going to drive somewhere to jog, particularly in London. Um, so, yes, yeah, so he kind of comes across the body. Okay, and, like, and well, the fact that he discovered on. it doesn't disqualify him because often, you know, one of the one of yeah. the other things <laughs> that comes up often in mysteries is the person who finds the, the body, body is, is the is a heavy suspect. But you know, no, not in this case. They let him no. just a little bit of artistic license, probably on my part. But I'm well, not. I'm not one of those writers when there and I've got like really intense forensic information i'm more about like oh what's the mystery what's the angle let's have some fun here rather than the right at the strand of mrna particular to this one ethnic group that you know so basically we end up with caius and his team mm. and then we have rupert and his circle yep um but how is it that you bring in um the the ancient world so to speak because you have a really good time with it yeah well i think i think 
Rupert has this kind of unrequited love for his friend Nell, um, and they and and there's a bit of a love triangle between him, Nell, and Alex, and they all studied classics together. So the fact that they all studied classics allows it to pop up ah, in places. How clever! Yes, and then Nell is very much one of those people who sort of lives in cultural pursuits. So she's always going to a museum here or a free lecture there and you sort of follow her around and see her half of the story. So it's called the other half. So half of it is, is the procedural kind of crime element and then the other half is the love triangle romantic side, which is probably also crime, <laughs> ultimately. And then satisfyingly, I won't tell you how it works out, there's like the big country house finish with a you know, fake Greek temple and all yeah. kinds of other fun stuff. So you brought in any number of elements. I mean, I have to say that, you know, your command of all these different things is rather impressive. Oh, well, thank you. I think a lot of the things that that pop up, so um, Audrey Hepburn pops up a few times, because My Fair Lady is my favourite musical. Okay. <laughs> um, and it, because I, I love it so much, it's sort of just in the back of my head. So it's quite natural for me to pull out all the little things and the threads that I... From, Interest Alfred P. Doolittle, the dustman, who's my oh, favorite yes. character yes. in My Fair Lady. Oh, he's great. I like him in the um, in the musical version very much. Mm -hmm. I saw it recently. Pig, I saw Pygmalion recently um, because it's my favorite. I was like, oh, let's go watch Pygmalion. Uh, Jane Austen is another one that pops up. I'm a massive Austen fan. I was one of those awkward 14-year-olds who just sat in their room rereading Pride and Prejudice rather than talk to boys <laughs> it's like i just fall in love with mr darcy instead much safer to be fair <laughs> well okay my favorite is persuasion um persuasion is my favorite actually i love captain frederick wentworth yeah um, they made a very good movie out of it too although pride and prejudice gets a lot more attention but anyway i think uh, uh, one of the things i really appreciated about your book is the fact that you have these diverse elements as a person who studied acting mm. You must know about blocking. Mm -hmm. And I felt like you were blocking scenes in various times, you know. So how visual are you when you're, you know, especially at the end when you have mm -hmm. all of that going on? Do you see it? I think I, 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 tr I think I think when I'm writing, I try to think of things in steps. And that's the nice thing about a police procedural. And the problem I had when I tried earlier drafts was that I didn't feel like it had enough momentum. I had these awful characters, but I couldn't stop it from being navel-gazing, which is why the police mm. procedural element gave it so much pace, which worked really well. But yeah, I think the acting part of my brain steps in and I go, right, well, he's entered the room. What's he going to do when he enters the room? He's going to pick up that piece of paper off off that chair, right? And then he's going to read it and he's going to, and then it's that kind of logical step mm -hmm. by step. And I think, I think you're right. I think my acting training kicked in at that point. And I, um, I have to say, I've read stuff that I wrote before I went to drama school that didn't need to ever see the light of day, mm -hmm. and the stuff I've written after, and my dialogue gets a lot better post-drama school, okay. because you, you can't be studying Shakespeare plays in depth and, and learning it line by line and looking at the meter, and the, every single word has to work in Shakespeare, every every single word um, is there for a very good reason, and you, you, you just sort of, I think you internalise that a bit, and I sort of think my dialogue got much better. <laughs> Right. Speaking of Shakespeare, I'm going to insert a little commercial here. The British <laughs> Library has put out a, for the 400th anniversary of the first folio, the first collection of Shakespeare's work and all, a fabulous facsimile 
which we have a copy of. I brought it in, and Jacob, I, I can't really lift it, so I gave it to Jacob. <laughs> it weighs a ton. Um, it's really, uh, it's just beautiful. Rizzoli has put it out, but um, I think it's exciting to be able to see, you know, what it looks like with the original engravings and, um, you know, original texts and so forth, because some have been modified over the years, but I'm I'm suggesting it as a Christmas gift. It's fairly expensive um, <laughs> for people who really, you know, are fond of Shakespeare yeah. or drama and yeah. never have had a chance to see mm-hmm. it. I, it's a wonderful digital world has allowed um, a lot yeah. of fabulous um, publications of things that were too fragile, you know, before to ever do anything with. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it's got away at least 10, 15 pounds. I thought about, you know, using it for weights, <laughs> see what I could do with it. But yeah, but it, it's really beautiful. So um, yeah, I see it. So where do you see yourself going now that you've had this um, splash with a debut? Mm. Are you feeling any pressure to live up to it? I've already written the second one. Oh, you have? Um, oh. Yeah, so that's that's written. Uh, um, and it's, it's uh, the proofs have come out in the UK. I'm not sure when the American ones are coming out. I've actually started the third one. I've been writing it on the plane. <laughs> so I've got about 18,000 words of book three. So continuing character is yeah, Caius, Caius back. comes back. Matt and Amy, they're they're the team. I will return. There's more hats in book two. I don't want to give any spoilers, obviously, but the hats. There's more hats. hats. There's very little hat in the first one, mm. and the second one there's quite a lot of hats. Yeah, they probably weren't <laughs> wearing hats when they went to McDonald's. They, right? they. That's a great idea, don't you think? I really love that cocaine and champagne at McDonald's and top <laughs> hats, and yeah, gotta love it. So, um, any questions that you did, ladies would like to ask, or you just came to be entertained? I haven't got a clue. Um, I'm somewhere between a planner and a pantser, so I've got a really vague idea of how it ends, um, but I don't know how many books there are in between. Uh, between those two you points. Mean you have a story arc for Caius? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a general direction that his life is going to head in. Um, but he's pretty young. He's, yeah, he's fair. Yeah, he's in his mid 30s. I think he's 34 in the first book. Um, so, yeah, so I've got like a general kind of flow, but I haven't I haven't worked anything out like that, I'm afraid. Actually, what interestingly, when I was writing it, I thought the killer was going to be one of two I hadn't made my mind up and it was going to be one of two people and then it was ended up being somebody else because I, I, I'm not a huge plan I come up with a base plan and then I cling to it like a safety net and then I chuck it out the window and forget about it about ten chapters in and I think I, I, that's just how I work Anybody else? No? Okay, Patrick <laughs> any questions from the audience? Yeah. Um, Robin would like to know if Hi Robin Sensing a movie or limited series have you had any feelers for um, the rights have been sold, so um, watch this space is all I can say. Right, I know. You know, every time there is like a, a Hollywood or a television, or whatever it is, they shroud it in secrecy. I've never quite worked out why is, but they do. Well, I, you just kind of things are all a bit loosey goosey, aren't they? Well, TV, yeah, no, you know. I know it'll happen and, if it, or it won't. But uh, even even when they've nailed it down, they still <laughs> they still want to make like a surprise announcement or something, you know, whatever it is, which I think is fascinating. But that's interesting for you. Mm. Um, would you feel inspired to like write a script? I don't know that I, I don't know that script writing is really for me because it's, it, it's obviously it's still storytelling, but it's a different medium. And I'm so used to being able to, to put in all the little bits with the prose and having the kind of, oh, 
first folio. Oh, there it is. Um, you know, all the kind of, you know, the little tricky bits, the kind of food comes up a lot in this book. Um, and having, having you know, that kind of discussion in the classics and the kind of the theatre and all those things that, that pop up in my work. And Seriously, I, it's, I don't, I don't lift it. Crikey. <laughs> Did you wait? Oh, yes. Yeah, I know. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's it? absolutely gorgeous. I love it. Sorry. Stunning. I, I yes. Go back and regroup. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a different. If it's a, it's a different form of storytelling, and I don't, right. I, I don't know that I would be the right person to do that at the moment. If that makes sense, I like prose too much. No, I know because um, you know a script is stripped down. I mean, you're lucky to get a hundred pages if you're yeah. doing a script, as compared to a novel. So, it, you know that. And Patrick and I have, and over the years, have talked to so many people who either are scriptwriters for Hollywood and then they try to write a novel or they're novelists and they try to write a script. And some people can do both, yeah. but not everybody. I think they are. I mean, they, they obviously have the same end goal, but they're quite different skill sets, I think. Just being able to, being able to convey something in, in three words versus right. half a paragraph is quite Because you're the god of your novel. And if you're writing a script, you know, you wind yeah. up with like a... A writer's room or something, and then yeah. you don't get to be the only person. Yeah, I and think I think that control. would be hard if it were your own book. Yeah, uh, to have oh, other yeah. people, you know, having writing input. Your book. <laughs> right. I think I. I mean, I wouldn't know because I haven't done it, but I would think it would be hard. Anything else? Henry Kissinger has died. Oh, really? Not a question, but an announcement. Oh, how about that? No, and as a matter of fact, didn't he go to China very recently on some kind of a, I think he did, some kind of a diplomatic thing still. Not at all. Good innings, yeah. as we say. That's it? Okay. Charlotte, what would you like to ask any of us, since this is your first American book tour, what were yes. your expectations? Well, I have small children and I'm quite sleep deprived. So expectations are sort of beyond me at the moment. I'm sort of just going from day to day, hoping the dishes are clean. Um, <laughs> right. um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was it really interesting how much, how much Anglophilia there is, if that makes sense. Um, for, for like the sort of, the appetite, literary, for, yeah, literary, the literary Anglophilia. Anglophilia. Yes. yes, you don't have to date English people. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. well. But for kind of particularly for crime novels, because it feels to me that crime crime novels and and just crime in general feel quite intrinsic to the British psyche. Almost. Well, it's it's basically a British form, British mm. and an English language form, yeah. anyway, which is now expanded all over the globe, and people are writing original crime and in anything. Um, I've really seen so much of that in the last thirty years. You know how much um, the Japanese, for example, mm. have now got a really brisk mystery tradition, yeah. but they used to import yep. um, a ton of American. Maybe they still do, but mm. um, translators are. Um, hard at work. Mm -hmm. I think it, the Scandinavian crime wave that yeah. was so heavy certainly encouraged that. But yeah. now, now there's you know mystery in practically every language. It's, mm -hmm. I love the form, but basically you're right. It's yeah. basically British. And yeah, so if the made an interesting point when she said that um, in general terms, crime fiction tends to skew left, mm. and thrillers tend to skew right. Mm. Which is interesting, kind of dichotomy. I don't know if it's, 
And not not entirely untrue. I have to say, thinking about it, yeah, it is an interesting observation. She's I, a, yeah. a great student of the of the genre. I think. I think part of that is almost because, like, if you're trying to solve a murder, you're trying to put wrong or put right a, a societal wrong to an extent. So, like, murders really are just unnatural. Like, it shouldn't happen. Like, it's an, it's an aberration of the of the order. So, if you're kind of if you're thinking about what's wrong with the social order to produce that situation, then you ultimately, whether you intend to or not, all crime novels are satirical. Well, they are. And famously, Sarah Peretzky, I think it was, but maybe somebody else said that, you know, great mystery cuts along the edge of social change. Mm -hmm. So the conflict often arises where um, there is that kind of, mm -hmm. of social conflict, whereas thrillers are more like trying to put things right in a different way I a lot like of them are military based uh, you know that i think yeah. it's hilarious that we are like an epicenter of military fiction here at the poison family not <laughs> one of us <laughs> i mean how likely is that but it's really true um and i and they do tend to be more more right i think as mm -hmm. a consequence of that you know imposing order and you know um that kind of thing that is an interesting observation let's ask her on monday Mm. Yeah, it'll be fun because we're going to be talking oh, to her. Oh, lovely. Mm. She's uh, a good interviewee. <laughs> she, do you know Val? No, 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 I don't. But I've obviously seen her being interviewed yeah. before. No, she's she's wonderful. We've been around forever together, so she's a lot of fun. Right. Um, well, if you guys don't have any more questions, would you like to get your book signed? All right. Lovely. Wonderful. So thank you very much, virtual Bye. audience, for joining us. And thank, thank you. you. Live art. And thank you, Charlotte. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's been delightful. Well, hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.